Chapter 37 of History of Philosophy. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. History of Philosophy by William Turner. Third Period of Scholasticism. Alexander of Hales to Occam. 1200 to 1300. The second period in the history of scholastic philosophy was the period of storm and stress. The third is the period of relative perfection, the golden age of scholasticism. The twelfth century was a century of criticism and controversy. The thirteenth is a century of synthesis and construction. The great masters of scholastic thought in the thirteenth century take as lively an interest in the problem of universals as Rosselin and Abelard did. They have all Abelard's relish for the use of dialectic without any of his frivolous love of display. They are not less appreciative of the value of piety and contemplation than the Victorines were. They are as keenly aware to the advantages to be gained from the learning of the Greeks and Arabians as were the members of the school of Chartres. In a word, they neither despise nor neglect what their predecessors accomplished, but, going beyond the limits which circumstances set to the speculations of their predecessors, they carry the scholastic idea and the scholastic method into new regions of inquiry and succeed in constructing the great scholastic systems of metaphysics and psychology. The schoolmen of the 13th century are not, like their predecessors, condemned to work and think in a milieu unfavorable to constructive speculation. The time is ripe for vast constructive attempts. From the union of the Latin and German races, there has sprung up a new Europe, dominated everywhere by Christian ideals. The new civilization has reached its complete development, and the time has come for Christian thought to put forth its best efforts. There were three events which more than any others influenced the development of Christian thought at the beginning of the 13th century. The introduction of the works of Aristotle, the rise of the universities, and the foundation of the mendicant orders. Introduction of the Works of Aristotle Authorities a. Jourdain, Recherche sur l'âge et l'origine des traductions latines d'Aristote, deuxième édition, Paris, 1843, Monsignor Talamo, L'Aristotelismo della Scolastica, 1873, Lonoué, Divaria Aristotelis in Academia Parisiensi Fortuna, edition at Wittenberg in 1820, Brother Azarius, Aristotle and the Christian Church, in Essays Philosophical, Chicago, 1896. The schoolmen of the 11th and 12th centuries were, for the most part, acquainted with Aristotle merely as a master of dialectic. Indeed, it was not until the time of John of Salisbury that even the Organon was known to Christian philosophers in its entirety. It is true that some of the physical doctrines of Aristotle were known to the members of the school of Chartres, 
but it was only at the beginning of the 13th century that all the physical, metaphysical, and ethical treatises of Aristotle were translated into Latin and became part of the library of the schoolmen. The first translations were made from the Arabic, probably through the medium of the Hebrew. The work of translating begun in the 11th and 12th centuries by Constantine the African, Adelard of Beth, and Hermann the Dalmatian was systematized between the years of 1130 and 1150 by Raymond, Bishop of Toledo, who founded a college of translators. To this college belonged John Evandith, Johannes Hispanus, Dominicus Gundisalvi, Alfred de Morlaix, Gerard of Cremona, 1114-1187, and at a later time, about 1230, Michael Scott and Hermann the German. The translations, as has been said, were often made through the medium of Hebrew. This is true of the translations of commentaries and possibly also of the translations of the text of Aristotle's works. Renan says of the commentaries of Averroes, quote, The printed editions of his works are a Latin translation of a Hebrew translation of a commentary made upon an Arabic translation of a Syriac translation of a Greek text, end quote. The translations made directly from the Greek are, as a rule, of later date than the translations from the Arabic. Before the year 1215 or 1220, none of Aristotle's works except the Organon were translated from the Greek. It was after the year 1240 that Robert Greathead, 1175-1253, to translated Aristotle's Ethics, and Henry of Brabant and Thomas of Cantempré translated some other portions of Aristotle's works. About 1260, William of Murbeke, at the request of St. Thomas and it appears of Urban IV, translated the complete works of Aristotle into Latin. This version, known as the Translatio Nova, imperfect as it was, held its place as the authoritative translation of Aristotle till the dawn of the era of the Renaissance although it is evident that in St. Thomas's time there were several other translations in use. In the light of the foregoing facts, the attitude of the Church towards the study of Aristotle's works is seen to be perfectly consistent. One in 1210, the Provincial Council of Paris, which condemned the doctrines of Amaury and David of Dinan, prohibited the reading of Aristotle's works and the commentaries thereupon, Nec libri Aristoteles de naturale philosophia, nec commenta legantur parisis publici vel secreto. The prohibition was directed against the Arabian translations rendered into Latin and against the Arabian commentaries. One in 1215, Robert of Courson, the papal legate, drew up the statutes for the guidance of the masters of the University of Paris and therein forbade the reading of the physical and metaphysical treatises, the regulation once more referred to the Arabian Aristotle. When in 1231, Gregory IX directed that the Libri Naturalis be expurgated of errors, it was a sign that the true Aristotle was beginning to be distinguished from the false, 
And indeed, in 1254, we find the writings of Aristotle prescribed by the Faculty of Arts as textbooks for the master's lectures in the University of Paris. The Aristotle that was twice condemned was professedly hostile to Christianity. To the controversies of former centuries, Aristotle had contributed merely the weapons of dialectical debate. But as soon as translations were made from the Arabic, and Arabian commentaries were appended to them, Aristotle's works were made to yield material for a new rationalism and a new pantheism essentially hostile to Christian faith and to theism. When, however, translations were made from the Greek text, it became clear that peripateticism and scholasticism were by no means hostile to each other. And from the time of Alexander of Hales onward, Aristotle's philosophy was made the basis of a rational exposition of dogma. Aristotle became for the schoolmen what Plato had been for the fathers, precursor Christi in naturalibus. Rise of the Universities Authorities For the history of the University of Paris, with which we are chiefly concerned here, the authorities besides Du Boulay's Historia Universitatis Parisiensis, a very uncritical work, are Tenifles Cartularium Universitatis Parisiensis, 1889-1891, and Die Entstehung der Universitäten des Mittelalters bis 1400, 1885. Rashdell's University of Europe in the Middle Ages, Volume 1, Oxford, 1895, Laurie's Lectures on Rise, etc., of Universities, London, 1886, a work not always reliable, Ferret's uh, La Faculté de Théologie de Paris, Paris, 1894, and articles in Catholic University Bulletin, July, October, 1895. The event which is now universally admitted as the starting point of the history of the University of Paris is the union of the masters and students of the schools in the island into a corporation, Universitas Magistrorum et Scolarium, under the presidency of the Chancellor of the Cathedral. This event took place about the end of the 12th century. During the first decades of the 13th century, the faculties were organized. About the same time, the nations were organized among the students and the masters of the Faculty of Arts, and a struggle began between the rector of the nations and the chancellor of the university. Privileges bestowed both by the popes and the French kings extended the influence and prestige of the university. Paris became the quote-unquote city of books, the center of the intellectual life of Christian Europe and the scene of the greatest triumphs of scholasticism. It was at Paris all the great masters studied and taught, and so intimately is the history of scholastic philosophy connected with the University of Paris, that to understand the conditions in which scholasticism attained its highest development, it is necessary to know something of the arrangements made for the study of philosophy at the University. By statutes, issued at various times during the 13th century, it was provided that the professor should read, that is, expound, 
the text of certain standard authors in philosophy and theology. In a document published by Denifle, and by him referred to the year 1252, we find the following works among those prescribed for the Faculty of Arts. Logica Vetus, the old Boeotian text of a portion of the Organon, probably accompanied by Porphyry's Isagoge, Logica Nova, the new translation of the Organon, Gilbert's Liber Sex Principiorum, and Donatus's Barbarismus. A few years later, 1255, we find the following works prescribed. Aristotle's Physics, Metaphysics, De Anima, De Animalibus, De Cello et Mundo, Meteorica, the minor psychological treatises, and some Arabian or Jewish works such as the Liber de Causis and the Differentia Spiritus et Anime. The first degree for which the student of arts presented himself was that of bachelor. The candidate for this degree, after a preliminary test called Responsiones, this regulation went into effect not later than 1275, presented himself for the Determinatio, which was a public defense of a certain number of theses against opponents chosen from the audience. At the end of the disputation, the defender summed up or quote-unquote determined his conclusions. After determining, the bachelor resumed his studies for the licentiate, assuming also the task of quote-unquote cursorily explaining to junior students some portion of the organon. The test for the degree of licentiate consisted in a collatio, or exposition, of several texts after the manner of the masters. The student was now a licensed teacher. He did not, however, become magister, or master of arts, until he had delivered what was called the inceptio, or inaugural lecture, and was actually installed, Piritatio. If he continued to teach, he was called Magister Actu Regens. If he departed from the university or took up other work, he was called Magister Non Regens. It may be said that, as a general rule, the course of reading was 1. For the bachelor's degree, grammar, logic, and psychology. 2. For the licentiate, natural philosophy. 3. For the master's degree, ethics and the completion of the course of natural philosophy. The Mendicant Orders The University of Paris owed its origin to the union of the cathedral schools which were in charge of the diocesan clergy. Soon, however, the two great orders, the Dominicans and the Franciscans, were founded and began to revive in their monasteries the best traditions of the Benedictine cloister schools of former centuries. On the occasion of the Great Dispersion of 1229, when, after having had recourse to a cessatio, or suspension of lectures, the masters left the city as a protest against the infringement of their privileges, the Dominicans obtained a license to establish a chair in the convent of St. James. After the return of the secular masters in 1231, the Dominican master was allowed to continue his lectures. 
In the same year, the Dominicans secured another chair, and the Franciscans obtained their first chair in the university, Alexander of Hales being installed as the first Franciscan master. In 1252 or 1253, under circumstances very similar to those of 1229, the great body of masters once more proclaimed a cessatio, any struggle between the quote-unquote regulars and the quote-unquote seculars was precipitated by the refusal of the regular professors to leave their chairs or to swear obedience to the statutes of the university. The controversy was still raging in 1257, when St. Thomas presented himself for his solemn inceptio as master in theology. William of St. Amour was the champion of the seculars, while St. Thomas and St. Bonaventure advocated the cause of the regulars. The outcome was that the mendicants obtained a secure standing in the university, and the fate of scholasticism was practically committed to the teachers who belonged to the Dominican and Franciscan orders. In this way, within the scholastic movement itself, two distinct currents of thought soon began to be defined, the Dominican tradition and the tradition of the Franciscan schools. The mendicant orders are thus associated with the greatest triumph of philosophy in the 13th century, as well as with the tendencies which, in subsequent centuries, led to the downfall of scholasticism. Chapter 38 Predecessors of St. Thomas Among the predecessors of St. Thomas in the 13th century were Simon of Tournay, Alexander Neckham, Alfred Sereschel, William of Auvergne, Alexander of Hales, John de la Rochelle, and Albert the Great. St. Bonaventure, the contemporary and friend of St. Thomas, and Roger Bacon, the adversary of both St. Bonaventure and St. Thomas, are also included in this chapter. Simon of Tournay, Alexander Neckham, and Alfred Sereschel, Alfredus Anglicus, began about the end of the 12th century and the beginning of the 13th to expound the physical and physiological doctrines of Aristotle and the Arabians. They taught and wrote before the introduction of the translations made from the Greek text of Aristotle, and were attacked by the mystics as innovators and teachers of profane doctrine. William of Auvergne Life William of Auvergne, called also William of Paris, was born at Aurillac towards the close of the 12th century. About 1220 he was appointed to teach in the Episcopal School at Paris, and in a few years he became one of the most celebrated of the theologians of the university. In 1228 he became Bishop of Paris. He died in 1249. Sources The principal works of William of Auvergne are a metaphysical treatise, De Universo, and two psychological treatises, De Anima and De Immortalitate Anime. His collected works were published at Nuremberg at 1496, at Venice at 1591, and at Orléans at 1674. Monograph, Die Erkenntnislehre des Wilhelm von Auvergne, 
by Dr. Baumgartner, Münster, 1893. Doctrines. William has for his aim to unite the newly introduced philosophy of Aristotle with the philosophy of St. Augustine and the other Platonists. When, however, he finds that the doctrines of Arabian Aristotle clash with those of the Christian Platonists, he adapts the traditional Augustinian teaching. In his theory of knowledge, he rejects, on the one hand, the Platonic doctrines of pre-existence and of innate ideas, and on the other hand, the Aristotelian doctrine of the active intellect, teaching that, although the soul obtains a knowledge of sensible things from the world of sense phenomena, it is able, nevertheless, to form the species of things in itself and by itself, that is, without the aid of a power such as the active intellect distinct from itself. Thus he says, Similiter anima non est recipiens tantum, sed etiam actrix et effectrix earum, id est specierum apud semet ipsam in semet ipsa. Roger Bacon, therefore, was wrong when, after having listened to two lectures by William of Auvergne, he ascribed to him the opinion, Intellectus agens est Deus principaliter et secundario angeli qui illuminant nos. In De Universo, William explicitly declares that the intellect, levissime commotus a rebus, earum species, Ipse sibi ipsi semet ipso format. Our knowledge of first principles is obtained, William of Auvergne teaches, not from the contingent world, but from God, in whom we perceive them by means of a special illumination, voluntaria dei illuxio. In his solution of the problem of universals, he seems to incline towards Platonic realism. Necesse est res intelligibiles ita se habere sicut de eis testificatur intellectus. Testificatur autem eas esse communes sempiternas et seorsum agenerazione et corruptione et ab omni tumultu mutationum. The passage is, however, capable of being interpreted in the Aristotelian sense. Historical Position William of Auvergne represents the first stage in the transition from the scholasticism of the 12th to that of the 13th century. It was Alexander of Hales who, by the use of the scholastic method, constructed the first of the great systems of Aristotelian scholasticism. Alexander of Hales, Life. Alexander of Hales, Doctor Irrefragabilis, was born in Gloucestershire, England. In 1222, he joined the Order of St. Francis. In 1231, he was installed as the first Franciscan teacher of theology in the University of Paris. He died in 1245. Sources. The principal, if not the only work of Alexander of Hales, is the Summa Theologiae, which was completed by his pupils in 1252 and published at Nuremberg in 1482 
and at Venice in 1575. Works to be consulted. Monsieur Picavé, Abelard et Alexandre de Hales, brochure. De Martigne, La Scholastique et les Traditions Franciscaines, Paris, 1888. Doctrines. Method. Alexandre of Hales was the first schoolman who wrote after the entire works of Aristotle had become known in the schools, and the prohibition that debarred some of his predecessors from the study of Aristotle had been removed. His is not the first summa, Robert of Mellon and Stephen Langton having composed summae in the 12th century. Alexander's is, however, the first summa made after the introduction of Aristotle's works. In it, we find the scholastic method fully developed. Instead of the array of antithetical opinions found in Abelard, Sick and None, we find the tripartite arrangement of each question corresponding to the arrangement afterwards made by St. Thomas under the heads Videtur quod non, sed contra, and Respondetur ad primum, etc., Besides giving definite form to the scholastic method, Alexander outlined the plan which St. Thomas and the other great summists were to follow. Metaphysics Human reason can arrive at a knowledge of the existence of God, but not at a knowledge of his essence. We can know quia est, but not quid est. Alexander admits the validity of St. Anselm's ontological argument, maintaining that a knowledge of God is natural to man. Cognitio de Deo in habitu naturaliter nobis impressa est. He distinguishes, however, between cognitio actualis and cognitio potentialis. God is actus purus. Everything else all created being, is composed of matter and form. Even spiritual substances are composed of spiritual matter. Quae nec est subiecta motui, nec contrarietati. This universal matter is different from the universal matter, which, according to Avicibrol, is the substratum of all finite existence, for Alexander rejects the pantheistic and neoplatonic elements of Avicibrol's philosophy. With regard to universals, Alexander teaches, in the first place, that they exist ante rem, in the mind of God. The divine mind is, he thinks, the intelligible world of which Plato speaks. Mundum intelligibilem nuncupavit Plato ipsam rationim sempiternam qua fecit Deus mundum. In the next place, he teaches that the universals are in re. This may be inferred from his doctrine that the active intellect abstracts the intelligible species from phantasms. Psychology Alexander's psychology, while it is peripatetic in its general trend, bears evidence of the influence of the Augustinian idea of the soul and its faculties. In the Summa, our philosopher examines seven different definitions of the soul and decides that the soul, although it is the substantial form of the body, is itself composed of a spiritual matter. 
an admission which, as the later schoolmen conclusively show, is incompatible with the substantial unity of man. In his enumeration of the faculties of the soul, he follows the traditional Augustinian division of the powers of the mind into ratio, which has for object the external world, intellectus, which has for object created spiritual substances, and intelligentsia, which has for object the rationes eterne and first principles. Our knowledge of the supersensible world by means of intellect and intelligence is dependent on a special divine illumination. Our knowledge of the external world is rendered possible by the active intellect, which abstracts intelligible species from the material intellect, fantasia. The possible intellect, the receptacle of these species, is the cognitive power of the mind considered as in potency to knowledge. Historical Position Alexander's philosophy exhibits in a less degree than did the philosophy of William of Auvergne the strife of two elements, the Augustinian and the Peripatetic. The irrefragable doctor made more extensive use of the writings of Aristotle than his predecessor had done. Still, he did not succeed in substituting the Aristotelian doctrines of metaphysics and psychology for the Augustinian doctrines which had become traditional in the schools. Alexander's most important contribution to philosophy is his development of the scholastic method and his application of it to the discussion of theological problems. To him is also due the credit of outlining the plan followed in all the great summae, and although his synthesis of philosophical doctrine is lacking in unity and completeness, it cannot be denied that his influence on the summits of the next generation was very great. He was held in high esteem by Albert and St. Thomas. As Gerson says, Testantur scripta eusdem sancti tome, quam intimum sibi fecerat et familiarem illum quem laudabat doctorem Alexandrum. Jean de la Rochelle, 1200-1245, was a disciple of Alexander under whom he qualified for his license as teacher at Paris. He wrote a treatise, De Anima, in which he defends the Augustinian doctrine of the identity of the soul with its faculties, about which Alexander seems to hesitate, and accentuates the physiological aspect of psychological problems. In the latter point, he shows the influence of the Arabian physicists. When in 1245 he retired from the duties of teacher, he was succeeded by John of Parma, who in turn was succeeded by Saint Bonaventure. Saint Bonaventure, life. Saint Bonaventure, John Fidanza, surnamed Dr. Seraphicus, was the most illustrious among the disciples of Alexander of Hales. He was born at Bagnorea, near Viterbo, in the year 1221. In 1238, he entered the Order of St. Francis. He was sent to Paris, where, as he himself tells us, he had for master Alexander of Hales. 
1248 he received his licentiate, and although in 1253 he undertook the duties of teacher of theology in the Franciscan convent, it was not until 1257 that he made his solemn inceptio, having for fellow candidate St. Thomas of Aquin. The two saints were employed by their respective orders to defend the mendicants against William of Saint-Amour, and from the moment of their first acquaintance at Paris until their death, which occurred in the same year, 1274, they maintained a friendship in which they seemed to rise above the spirit of rivalry, existing even at that time between the two great orders. Saint Bonaventure was made general of the Franciscans in 1257, and was raised to the dignity of cardinal by Gregory X. He died during the Council of Lyon, 1274. Sources Saint Bonaventure's works were published in Rome, 1586 to 1596, Mainz, 1609, and Lyon, 1668. They have been republished by the Franciscans of Quaracchi, near Florence. The last volume of this excellent edition appeared in 1902. The most important of St. Bonaventure's works are his Commentaria in Quator Libro Sententiarum, De Reductione Artium Ad Theologiam, Itinerarium Mentis Ad Deum, Breviloquium, and a number of treatises on ascetic theology, such as the Soliloquium, De Regimine Anime, etc. As secondary sources, we have Della Vera Filosofia, etc., Del Serafico Dottor San Bonaventura, by P. Marcellino da Civezza, Genova, 1874, and Di Lere des Heiligen Bonaventura, etc., by Krause, Paderborn, 1888. Doctrines St. Bonaventure's philosophy is, like that of his two predecessors in the Franciscan chair of theology, a combination of Augustinian with peripatetic elements. Instead, however, of drawing from the psychology of St. Augustine, the seraphic doctor draws rather from the mysticism of the Christian Plato, at the same time retaining in his account of the relation of form to matter some of the anti-Aristotelian tenets which had even in his day become part of the traditional teaching of the Franciscans. He is careful, like his great contemporary St. Thomas, to distinguish between theology, which has for object supernatural truth, and philosophy, which has for object truth of the natural order. He is inclined, however, to attach more importance than St. Thomas does to the emotional and volitional elements in philosophy, and to the affective, or the ascetico-mystic, aspect of theology. Still, it is possible to set aside for a moment the mystic and emotional elements of his system of thought, so as to enumerate the points of teaching in which he differs from St. Thomas, and to treat under separate titles his mysticism and his alleged ontologism. Metaphysics All finite being is composed of act and potency. St. Bonaventure, identifying form with act, 
and matter with potency teaches the doctrine advocated by Alexander of Hales that there is no form without matter. This is one of the distinctively Franciscan doctrines. The plurality of forms is another. Besides the substantial form, which completes the being of a substance, there are subordinate forms, which are principles of ulterior perfection. With regard to the principle of individuation, that by which the individuals of the same species are differentiated from one another, St. Bonaventure decides that the individual hoc aliquid is individualized both by the matter and by the form. Sitamen queras aquo veniet individuatio principaliter, dicendum quod individuum est hoc aliquid, quod sit hoc principalius habet a materia, quod sit aliquid habet a forma, individuatio igitur in creaturis consurgit ex duplici principio. The doctrine of Rationes Seminales is another characteristic doctrine of the Franciscan school. St. Thomas accounts for the production of created substances by postulating the potency of the matter acted upon and the casualty or efficiency of the agent which acts. Besides these, St. Bonaventure postulates, on the part of the matter, principles created with the matter and cooperating with the agent in the production of the effect. Such principles he identifies with the Rationes Seminales, of which St. Augustine speaks. Psychology In his psychology, St. Bonaventure enumerates memory, intelligence, and will as faculties of the soul, and distinguishes them from the essence of the soul. Quoniam egrediuntur ab anima, non sunt omnino idem per essentiam. His theory of knowledge is best studied in connection with his mystical teachings. Mysticism The mystical elements of St. Bonaventure's system of thought are developed in his Itinerarium Mentis Ad Deum and his De Reductione Artium Ad Theologiam. He quotes with approval the teachings of St. Bernard and of the Victorines, and in later times he himself became the favorite author of the Orthodox mystics. All knowledge, he teaches, takes place by means of illumination. Now, there are four kinds of illumination. Primum, lumen exterius, scilicet lumen artis mechanicae. Secundum, lumen inferius, scilicet lumen cognitionis sensitive. Tertium, lumen interius, scilicet lumen cognitionis philosophicae, et quartum, lumen superius, scilicet lumen gratiae et sacre scripture. The lumen interius, the light of philosophical knowledge, starting from a knowledge of the sensible world and of first principles, which are natural gifts, enables us to rise to a knowledge of God, but it is only by the Lumen Superius, the light of divine grace and holy writ, that we can arrive at a knowledge of salutary truth, 
that is, of the truth which is unto salvation. In the Breviloquium, St. Benaventure adopts the teaching of Hugh of St. Victor, who distinguishes the eye of the flesh, by which we perceive the external world, the eye of reason, by which we attain a knowledge of ourselves, and the eye of contemplation, by which we rise to a knowledge of things above us. In the external world, we find a trace, vestigium, of God. In ourselves, and especially in the threefold activity of the soul, memory, reason, and will, we find an image, imago, of God. By means of contemplation of higher things, we rise to knowledge of God in His nature and threefold personality. Or rather, we are lifted up from this ecstatic knowledge. For while it is possible without the aid of divine grace to know God as He is shadowed forth in nature and imaged in our own souls, it is impossible without the aid of divine grace to acquire any knowledge which is unto salvation or to rise from the contemplation of higher things to a knowledge of the divine nature and the divine personalities. At contemplationem nemo venit nisi per meditationem perspicuam, conversationem sanctam, et orationem devotam, quam illuminationem nemo novit nisi qui probat, nemo autem probat, nisi per gratiam divinitus datam. In the highest grade of contemplative knowledge, the soul is united with God in mental and mystic ecstasy, excessus mentalis et mysticus, which is described in the last chapter of the Itinerarium as a state in which the soul leaves all sense and intellect and is lost, as it were, in God. Si autem queras quomoda hec fient, Interroga gratiam, non doctrinam, desiderium, non intellectum, gemitum orationis, non studium lectionis, sponsum, non magistrum, deum, non hominem, caliginem, non claritatem, non lucem, sed iniam inflammantem et in deum transferentem. Is St. Bonaventure an ontologist? Ontologism maintains, one, that God, the first in order of being, is the first in order of knowledge, primum ontologicum est primum logicum, two, that consequently our knowledge of God is intuitive, not abstractive, three, that in the light of the idea of God all our other ideas are acquired. Now, on the one hand, St. Benaventure teaches that we rise from a knowledge of creatures to a knowledge of God. Deus, qui est artifacts et causa creature, per ipsam cognoscitur. Cognoscere autem Deum per creaturas, hoc est proprie viatorum. Thus, it is evident that St. Bonaventure does not maintain the priority of our knowledge of God with reference to our knowledge of created things, nor does he maintain that our knowledge of God is intuitive. Moreover, his theory of cognition does not agree with the doctrine that we see all things in God, for while he maintains that some species intelligibilis are infused, 
he maintains at the same time that other species are acquired by the abstractive power of the active intellect and that the mind was at the beginning a tabula rasa hec autem sensibilia exteriora sunt que primo ingrediuntur in animam per portas quinque sensum on the other hand many of the teachings of saint benaventure are capable of an ontologistic interpretation he teaches for example that our knowledge of god and of the soul is independent of all sense knowledge necessario enim oportet ponere quod anima novit deum et seipsam et que sunt in seipsa sine adminiculo sensum exteriorum he also teaches that the first object of our knowledge is god esse igitur quod primo cadit in intellecto et illud esse est quod est actus purus restat igitur quod illud esse est esse divinum the context however shows that these two passages do not prove saint benaventure to be an ontologist he himself explains that the doctrine contained in the first passage agrees with the aristotelian principle nihil est in intellecto quod prius non fuerit in sensu and he gives the key to the second passage when he explains the difference between the intellectus apprehendens which may understand the effect without understanding the cause and the intellectus resolvens which if it fully quote-unquote resolves the effect must include in a knowledge of the effect a knowledge of the cause and in the knowledge of any creature the knowledge of god besides when in a treatise which is professedly mystic the seraphic doctor speaks of god as the first object of knowledge he may be understood to mean that a knowledge of god is the beginning of that knowledge which is unto salvation historical position saint benaventure is the type of the orthodox mystic he reproduces the principles of the victorine school without any of the exaggerations which characterize the later representatives of that school he does not oppose the study of philosophy or the use of dialectic to the amo ut intelligam of the mystics he adds the intelligo ut credam and the credo ut intelligam of the dialecticians he became as has been said the favorite author of the mystics of later times gerson for instance writes sicuratur ame quis interceteros doctores plus fideatur idonius respondeo sine prejudicio quod dominus bonaventura quoniam indocendo solidus est et securus pius justus et devotus roger bacon life roger bacon doctor mirabilis although belonging to the franciscan order is not a representative of franciscan tradition still he reproduces some of the franciscan doctrines and for this reason he may be associated with alexander of hales and saint benaventure he was born near ilchester in gloucestershire in the year 1214 he studied at oxford where he had for masters edmund rich robert greathead 
and Richard Fitzaker, or Fischaker, from whom he imbibed a love for linguistic, mathematical, and physical sciences. About the year 1245 he repaired to Paris, more sue gentis, as Brooker says, there to complete his studies. He listened not very respectfully, as his writings show, to Alexander of Hales and possibly to Albert the Great. Returning to Oxford, he joined the Franciscan order and became one of the most famous masters at that university. His career, however, was as brief as it was brilliant. He was exiled by the authority of his superiors, for what reason we are not told, and lived from 1257 to 1267 in what was virtually a prison belonging to his order in Paris. In 1267, he was liberated by order of Clement IV and returned to Oxford. In 1278, he was again imprisoned on the charge of insubordination and on account of his violent attacks on the religious orders and the highest clergy. He was liberated in 1292, but so little notice did the master once so famous now attract that not even the date of his death is recorded. Sources Bacon's principal works are Opus Maius, Opus Minus, an epitome of the Opus Maius, and Opus Tertium. Besides these, he left a Compendium Philosophiae. The Opus Maius was published by Jeb in 1733 and by Bridges, Oxford, 1897. In 1859, Brewer published the remaining works of Bacon, London, 1859. An excellent study of the life of Bacon is found in the work of Monsieur Charles Roger Bacon, Paris, 1861. Consult also article by Narbet in Revue des questions historiques, January 1894, and Pothast, Wegweise, page 130. Doctrines Reform of Scientific Method Roger Bacon is rightly regarded as the precursor of his namesake Francis Bacon, for he was the first to attempt to reform science by advocating the use of observation and experiments. He advocated also the study of mathematics and of languages. But although his efforts were supported by papal authority as long as Clement IV lived, Bacon never attains even a momentary success. The age was not yet tired of metaphysical speculation, and besides, the intemperate zeal which Roger Bacon expended on the cause of scientific reform was of itself sufficient to bring about the failure of his efforts. He rightly insisted on the use of observation in the investigation of nature. He was, however, not only wrong, but imprudent, when, without distinguishing between science and science, he condemned all use of deductive reasoning, even going so far as to say that mathematical proof does not convince unless it is confirmed by experience. Sine experientia nihil sufficienter sciri potest. Moreover, Roger was somewhat boastful. In his Opus Maius, addressed to Clement IV, he said that he had invented a system of universal grammar by means of which anyone might learn Hebrew, 
Greek, Latin, and Arabic within a few days, infra pauchissimas dies. So enthusiastic was he for the study of language that in the same work he advanced the extraordinary opinion that all Christians should read the scriptures in their original Hebrew and Greek. These exaggerations had their natural effect. Bacon was regarded as a fanatic. He not only failed to influence the thought of his age, but even placed in the way of scientific reform obstacles which were not removed until the end of the scholastic era. Philosophy When Roger Bacon declared that he would burn all the books of Aristotle if he possessed them, he is to be understood as speaking of the translations of Aristotle, which he justly condemned as inaccurate. He held Aristotle in the greatest reverence, and next to Aristotle he esteemed Avicenna, Indeed, he drew much of his philosophical and scientific doctrine from Arabian sources. He agreed with his Franciscan predecessors as to the plurality of forms and the existence of rationes seminales in matter. In his account of the active intellect, however, he goes over to the camp of the Arabian transcendentalists and not only maintains that the active intellect is separate, but explicitly identifies it with God a doctrine which, as we have seen, he falsely attributed to William of Auvergne. Et sic, intellectus agens, secundum maiores philosophos, non est pars anime, sed est substantia intellectiva, alia et separata per essentiam, ab intellectu possibili. Still, Roger was convinced that in maintaining this doctrine, he was not departing from the doctrine of the schools. He believed that he was merely interpreting St. Augustine's teaching concerning the rationes eterne. The Arabian doctrine that human life and human action depend on the heavenly bodies, a doctrine which formed the theoretical basis of magic during the Middle Ages, is part of the philosophy of Bacon. Per celum enim alterator corpus, et alterato corpore, excitator anima, nunc at actus privatos, Nunc publicus, salva tamen in omnibus arbitri libertate. Scientific doctrines. These belong to the history of the physical sciences rather than to the history of philosophy. Bacon seems to have had some knowledge of the reflection and refraction of light, and in more than one passage in his Opus Maius, he implies that he was acquainted with the use of the telescope. Possumus sic figurare perspicua, ut faceremus solem et lunam et stellas descendere secundum apparentiam hic inferius. Figuier thinks it probable that our philosopher used a combination of a concave mirror and a lens, and that by means of this combination he observed the heavenly bodies. In a work entitled De Secretis Operibus Artis et Nature, which is ascribed to Bacon by Figuier and others, we find interesting anticipations of modern inventions, such as locomotives, curus etiam possunt fieri, ut sine animali moviantur cum impetu inestimabili, flying machines, instrumenta volandi, and suspension bridges, sine columna vel aliquo sustentaculo. In the Opus Maius, page 318, the Milky Way is described as composed of many stars, habens multas stellas congregatas. Historical Position 
Roger Bacon resembled Abelard in his complete lack of respect for authority and scientific prestige. He spoke disparagingly of the irrefragable doctor, Alexandra Fales, saying that his summa was plus quam pondus unius equi. He characterized the great Albert as ignorant and presumptuous, and expressed contempt for the linguistic attainments of St. Thomas. He attacked the mendicant orders, the bishops, and the papal court. In this way he brought discredit on the cause which he was otherwise so well fitted to defend. He was certainly the greatest scientific light of the 13th century. Had he possessed as much prudence as scientific insight, he probably would have succeeded in his reforms and conferred inestimable benefit on scholastic philosophy. Albert, who was less of an innovator than Bacon, contributed far more than Bacon did to the advancement of science in the 13th century. Albert the Great Life Blessed Albert the Great, Doctor Universalis, represents the beginning of the Dominican tradition in philosophy. He was of the noble family of Bolstadt, and was born at Lauingen in Swabia in 1193. About the year 1212 he went to Padua, where for ten years he devoted himself to the study of the liberal arts, including philosophy. In 1223 he entered the order of St. Dominic. After completing his theological studies at Bologna, he taught first at Cologne and other German cities, and later at Paris where he seems to have eclipsed all his contemporaries. He taught at the convent of St. James, from which, after three years, 1245 to 1248, he was transferred to Cologne, and it was to Cologne that he returned once more, when after three years, 1260 to 1262, spent in Ratisbon as bishop of that see, he resigned the mitre to devote himself exclusively to study. He died in 1280, leaving a reputation for extraordinary learning and almost superhuman knowledge of the secrets of natural science. Vir in omniscientia adeo divinus, says a contemporary, ut nostri temporis stupor et miraculum congrue vocari possit. Sources Albert's works, comprising 21 folio volumes in the Lyon edition of 1651, reprinted Paris, 1890, contain 1. Commentaries on Aristotle's logical, physical, metaphysical, and ethical treatises. In these, the text and the exposition of the text are not separated as they are in St. Thomas's commentaries. 2. Philosophical works. De causis et processu universitatis and De unitati intellectus contra averroem. 3. Theological works. Commentaries on Scripture, Commentaries on Sentences, Summa de Creaturis, Summa Theologica, and ascetic treatises, such as the Paradisus Anime, Monograph, Zigard's Albert de Grosse, translated in abridged form by Dixon, London, 1876. Doctrines. The philosophy of Albert the Great is mainly identical in spirit and content with that of his illustrious disciple, St. Thomas. There are, however, some points of difference. 
as, for example, in the doctrine of the existence of raciones seminales and the permanence of the forms of elements in a mixture, both of which are maintained by Albert but rejected by St. Thomas. It may be said, without detracting from the credit due to Albert as one of the greatest exponents of scholasticism in its final form, that it was his pupil who first imparted to scholasticism its most compact systematic developments. Logic is divided into two parts, the study of incomplexa, or uncombined elements of thought, and the study of complexa, that is, of judgment and inference. In the second tract of the book, De Predicabilibus, Albert takes up the study of the problem of universals, and answers each of Porphyry's questions according to the principle of moderate realism, which since the beginning of the 13th century had become the common doctrine of the schools. Metaphysics, or Philosophia Prima, treats of being and its most universal properties. Under this head is included also the problem of the existence of God. The proof on which Albert places greatest reliance is not the ontological, but the cosmological arguments. Cosmology Albert teaches that God created the world ex nihilo according to exemplars, species et rationes omnium creatororum, existing eternally in the divine mind. The world is not the best possible world. Psychology The soul is an immaterial principle, the form of the body, ex anima et corpore fit unum naturaliter et substantialiter, the intellect is a faculty of the soul, independent indeed of the body, non affixa organo, yet receiving from the organism the material of thought. It is not the intellect that is fatigued, but the organism, motus phantasmatum et discursus spiritus, which ministers to it. Albert composed a treatise in refutation of the Arabian doctrine that the intellect is one for all men. Scientific Doctrines It was as a student of nature that Albert showed the universality of his genius. He was an authority in his day on physics, geography, astronomy, mineralogy, botany, alchemy, zoology, physiology, and phrenology. His contributions to natural science are quite as important as his contributions to philosophy. Indeed, his chief merit as a philosopher lies in the fact that he did more than any of his predecessors to establish in philosophy the spirit of scientific investigation. It is true that he borrowed many of his scientific doctrines from Aristotle. Nevertheless, he did not hesitate to criticize Aristotle and to reprove those who regarded Aristotle as infallible. Si autem credit ipsum Aristotelem, esse hominem tunc procul dubio errare potuit sicut et nos. He borrowed also from the Arabian and Jewish commentators of Aristotle, but he hints that personal observation led him to hold various physical doctrines which he did not feel justified in mentioning in his commentaries. Physica enim tantum suscepimus dicenda, plus secundum peripateticorum sententiam prosequentes, ea que intendimus, 
quam ex nostra scientia. Dicta peripatheticorum pro ut melius potui exposui, he says at the end of his book De Animalibus. Nec aliquis ineo potes deprehendere, quid ego ipse sensiam in philosophia naturali. Albert's original contributions to natural science cannot be mentioned here except in a general way. He was the first to use the term affinity to designate the cause of the combination of elements. He rejected the current theory that baser metals may be changed into gold by means of the philosopher's stone. Still he maintained the possibility of transmuting one metal into another, for all metals are naturally produced by the earth from a combination of sulfur and mercury, argentum vivum. They differ, therefore, by an accidental, not by a substantial form. Albert's observations and experiments in botany, zoology, and physical geography are mentioned in terms of the highest praise by Humboldt. Historical Position Albert is, without doubt, the greatest of the Christian expounders of Aristotle who appeared before the time of St. Thomas. We have seen that he is not a slavish follower of Aristotle. He takes cognizance of the work done by the Jews and Arabians. He acknowledges the debt that Christian philosophy owes to Plato and the Platonists, and in the region of physical science, he advances by the exercise of personal observation beyond the doctrine of Platonists and Peripatetics. Great, however, as was Albert's erudition, for he seems to have been exceptionally well-read in the literature of physical science. His knowledge of the succession of systems of thought was singularly inaccurate. He speaks, for example, of Plato as deriving certain doctrines from the Epicureans. Albert's chief merit lies in the success with which he expounded Aristotle's physical doctrines and in the impulse which his own researches in physical science gave to the investigation of nature. He was lacking in the power of synthesizing the scattered elements of knowledge into a compact system of thought. In this respect, he was excelled by his illustrious pupil, St. Thomas, whose future glory he foretold and whose renown as a teacher outshone his own, throwing greater luster on the church and on the order of St. Dominic, to which both Albert and St. Thomas belonged. End of chapter 37